This is the Past and Pending Podcast. I am your host, Adam Sexton. This is a podcast where a special guest and I discuss the entertainment choices that we've made recently, with a choice from the past and from the present for any formats that we want to discuss. This podcast is back. I'm back. We are back for the new year, at least. Sort of, somewhat. Uh, This is going to be a solo outing for this episode because, among many other things, I've been unable to secure a guest recently. Certain things have happened in, um, you know, my personal life. Nothing too grave. Some funerals were mixed in near the end of the year. Personal matters, family events, holidays, vacations, things that needed to be attended to, and I can only assume that the same applied to my guests. Uh, but now that most of these, uh, you know, life-changing events were out of the way, I'm back at a point where at the beginning of this year where I believe that I can schedule some time or be more effective at scheduling some time uh, with some guests. And I've had some guests who expressed interest but had to pull out for whatever reason. And some of the same uh, decisions, you know, kept me from recording a podcast. And I'm suspecting that maybe some people were scared off by wanting to be on this podcast. And in some cases, some were scared off by wanting to listen to it. For the previous episode, it was nearly three hours, the the episode that I did with Joe Stepp. And I did very little in the way of editing it. I'll be very honest here. Um, I'm, a, I'm a fan of podcasts that have these open-ended, free-ranging conversations, the ones full of tangents and uh, just buffoonery like that. I, I, I love the energy that Joe and I had and that uh, all that I had to do, or at least I thought that I had to do, was just put a music bumper at the beginning and one at the end. And I could just call it a day. I've made no claims to know what the hell I'm doing. Um, it's it's still baby steps. I'm still figuring this out as I go. But the one thing that I wanted to do with this podcast from the very start was to share the experience of recording and uh, conversation. I, I can do solo shows. But I like bouncing off of guests, bouncing off of others, hearing other points of view, opinions. Those are certain characteristics that draw me to podcasts in the first place. They're the things that you know inspire me to listen to them on a regular weekly basis. And I want to bring that same feeling here. So what I'm saying is that to improve what I'm attempting to do here and to grow and change and make this program more accessible and fun to listen to is that I'm going to need help and uh, you know contributions not money contributions although those would be appreciated if you want to do that <laughs> but really just voices you know other people's points of view and I feel that the only way that I can reach that goal and that eventual future is by doing it together so uh so I'm hoping that uh, things uh, improve uh, from here on out. Now on with the show, which is going to take a different turn this time. And I'm recording a solo podcast, like I said before. And one of the reasons that it has taken some time for me to record a new episode is trying to figure out what I could talk about 
on a solo episode. I, I didn't want to just stick to the format by myself, talk about what I've seen and watched and played and listened to, one from the past, one from the future. I, I, I still feel that that could work better uh, with a guest. So these solo episodes will either stick to a specific subject, like a certain title or a series or even an issue or an event, or in this case, a period in my life that is specific to the way that I consume media. And for that, I'll have to go back into the time machine almost, shit, 20 years ago. Um, I don't think that there would be anyone who would disagree with the ability, that the, the ability to see, read, or listen to anything is more accessible and affordable and at greater variety than it is right now. Uh, the various streaming services, the on-demand channels uh, for those with cable. And some may be very lucky to live near a repertory theater, but back then the options were limited, especially if you were like me and you lived in a small town in, say, Arkansas. So, in this case, thank God for the Pleasant Plains Video Mart. If I had to guess how I came to be interested in film, it it all started with a book called The Movie Video Guide by Nick Martin and Marsha Porter. And I'm sure there were many books of this kind, the most popular being the editions authored by Leonard Maltin, but this book was my first. My family was going on a trip, I don't remember where, and I'm thinking it's maybe late 80s. And we stopped at a friend's house on the way that just happened to have a yard sale. Um, I can't exactly pinpoint the year, nor could I pinpoint the yearly edition of the book, my understanding is that this series started in the mid-80s, like around 86, and continued all the way up to 2007. And I always liked movies uh, at that age, but I was fascinated, fascinated by this brick of a paperback book. I got my parents to buy it, and I'm sure it cost them a dollar, if that. And for the remainder of the trip, I just poured into this guide reading descriptions and getting an idea of certain genres or film series. As a guide, it truly worked. I would be obsessed with seeing certain films after the trip was over, such as Blade Runner or the Godfather films or Dead Calm, none of which my parents were okay with. But I was beginning to see the possibilities for the first time, as though I was about to embark on hundreds, if not thousands of journeys of... Uh, through this medium. The Pleasant Plains Video Mart has existed since, well, I wager that it's been around as long as I have or longer. I couldn't tell you when it became a rental service, but I bet that the gas station and the arcade room lasted for a while. My family lived in Pleasant Plains, Arkansas from 1982 till 2004. In 2001, I moved away with my brother to continue and eventually finish college. The The church that my parents still attend to is in Pleasant Plains, so every Sunday morning they go back to that town, and uh, last time I checked, the video mart is still standing. 
still a combination gas station and video rental store. I probably didn't hit the double digits in age, you know, years before I actually walked into the store. My my parents would rent the titles ahead of time and sometimes surprise my siblings and I, or we just weren't informed enough to make a choice or a request. Walking into the store when I eventually did was quite a treat, though. You had all the display cases were just seemed to be neatly arranged although not alphabetically because some customers tended to not put the boxes back where they found them and behind the counter was this wall of black cases where all the VHS tapes were contained with little white stickers on the bottom that would indicate you know what title they were since the local school district had its uh, kindergarten through sixth grade buildings in one nearby town to the north of where we lived and the high school was in Pleasant Plains, I figured that sooner or later when I got a car or however the opportunities to travel became more abundant that I would be paying the store at least a weekly visit and uh, as history would have it, I did not let myself down. The arcade section of the store would eventually be shut down, closed off, turn into a cafe that I never once stepped foot in. I, I wonder if anyone's using it right now. But the arcade was marvelous. Uh, there was about anywhere between four to six uh, pool tables. You had a wall adorned with uh, video game uh, cabinets and some pinball machines. But don't ask me what what kind of pinball machines because I, I didn't get into pinball machines until I got older but I do recall some of the cabinets that you had the Star Wars arcade game the one with the uh, vector graphics of course you had the combination Miss Pac-Man and Galaga machine which should be in every arcade and probably is and uh, I can remember uh, because I was a fan of the series uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade game and there were others my siblings and uh, father, I, I remember that we would spent uh, we spent time into this arcade room, and uh, we loved to waste time there. And when I ran out of quarters, I would either watch them or hang around with them as they played a game of pool, or I would wander uh, back into the video rental section. And I can remember there was uh, release posters all over the walls, and I can remember a poster of of all things return to the blue lagoon <laughs> I remember that I thought it didn't look like something I would like to see and definitely not something that my mother would allow but I thought that that Mila Jovovich woman looked pretty I had not hit puberty yet so that was the best that I could do as far as thinking about stuff like that Still, I used the guide for rental choices, especially when it came to older films. Video Mart had a copy of Blade Runner, but this was apparently the international cut. All that the box told me was that there was extra scenes of graphic violence that was reinserted for this version. You know, like like they were proud of that, or that they thought that gorehounds would love something like uh, Blade Runner. And granted, the scene where Roar Batty crushes Tyrell's head was very gnarly and intense, but the notification on the box just strikes me as silly now. So, where am I going with this? 
I probably could give you a rundown on my history with the store, how it was my main source of film rentals until I could drive to other towns and rent titles that you know Video Mart didn't have, which was rare, but it happened. But I'll table that for another time. The The point with the video guide and my increasing familiarity and draw to the store led to like a two or maybe a three or four year period. You know, somewhere between 1992 and 1996. Where I rented certain titles over and over again, which drove my parents crazy, maybe my siblings too. My weekly allowance wasn't much, maybe, you know, in those early days, maybe 10 bucks a week or so. And I couldn't commit to saving enough to purchase these from a store like Walmart, even if they were available. Older titles at Video Mart were like $2 for three days. I could get my fix, and make no mistake, this was an addiction. But eventually I would buy all of these and the drive to constantly rent a title eroded away. But there was something special about the handful of films that I'm about to uh, discuss. I've had people ask me what my favorite musical genre is. But rarely am I asked what my favorite film genre is. And I love all kinds, and there's good and bad in every genre, but I think my bread and butter is uh, action or adventure. I don't just see it as comfort food or mere escapism. I I feel that an action film with a good script and cast and crew can be ranked with the best in cinema. Sure, it becomes a breeding ground for, you know, trash and half-assed attempts much like you know horror and sci-fi but when everything clicks it captures the imagination and i can return to it again and again the titles that i'm about to discuss dabble into the sci-fi or the period drama territory but they are definitely action films through and through so with that i'll discuss five films that i couldn't get enough of from the years of 1993 through 1996 and the first uh, pick is Aliens I can recall the worst nightmare that I ever had the one that made me scream the loudest the imagery that filled me with the most dread the one where every detail still lingers I recall staying up late one Friday night in my bedroom watching a late TV movie on the local Fox affiliate. This was the first Alien film playing at like 9 or 10 at night or something. Everyone else in the family probably asleep by then. And it was just me under the covers watching this on a uh, little 11-inch TV screen. While the film was edited for, you know, television broadcast, it was still intense and very atmospheric, very memorable, and it felt like this slow burn nightmare. Frustrating in its, you know, patience and how it drew out the tension of this small crew being picked off one by one, but I always thought about the egg where the facehugger came out. It was the egg in this nightmare this nightmare that I had uh, in a room with no carpet, there was no paneling or decorations on the walls, 
there was a light bulb at the center of the ceiling and at the center of the floor was the egg and for no reason whatsoever I'm just sitting right in front of it like it's a fucking television and when the top of the egg opened and I could see one of the face huggers legs start to come out I screamed like the house was on fire I screamed so loud that I woke myself up and I'm sure that my parents must have loved that seeing how I was in their bed with them when it happened And that must have happened in the late 1980s, and so it goes without saying that it would be about five years before I would give the Alien franchise another chance. In fact, in 19, I want to say 1989 or maybe 1990, I had another traumatizing encounter with the, the film series, but this time it was with Aliens, and it was a surprise, uh, a chance encounter. In school, I had adopted a role of class clown, even though it didn't matter to me that most kids thought I was lame or unfunny or both. I also, however, had a penchant for being a smartass to my second grade teacher, which is what triggered my next encounter with this movie. Our school one night had a fall festival where we would have games and drawings and activities inside the main high school building and unknown to me at some particular point while I'm having fun rushing from room to room my mother and my second grade teacher met during the festivities and the teacher informed my mother that I had an attitude problem that I was smarting off directly to her this occurred back into the good old days of corporal punishment so when my mother informed me on the way home that dad would be taking his belt to my hind end I was taken aback but not surprised I mean the night had gone so well we walked through the door and my dad was watching aliens and when I looked at the screen it was at that exact moment when Ripley, Bishop, Hicks, and Newt are back on the USS Sulaco, having detonated a nuke on LV-426 and seemingly eradicating the alien threat for good. Ripley and Bishop were finally finding respect for each other and common ground for each other, and the moment that the Queen Alien's tail rips through Bishop, that was the first thing I saw when I looked at the TV screen. I saw the tail puncture through his chest. I saw the milky white stuff just erupt like a geyser out of his mouth. I saw the tail lift him off the ground up into the air into this dark shadow where the queen was hiding. She came out, she grabbed him, retracted the tail, and then ripped him in half. One half going here, the other half going there, and I just fucking screamed in terror. Now here's what's surprising. Almost immediately after that happened, my mom told my dad about my bad behavior at school, or at least this is the way I'm remembering it, and despite the fact that I was crying and the film was turned off at this point, thankfully, my dad nevertheless put me on his knee, gave me five lashes with his belt across my butt, and sent me to bed. Now, before you judge, I'll have you know that my father and I love each other, that he never 
assaulted me physically or verbally that he was just being a father. Like I said, days of corporal punishment. And needless to say, I never acted out towards my teacher or any teacher ever again. I respected my parents enough that I didn't want to fail them again in that regard. But the more that I think about it now, the more that I wonder if my parents took a little advantage of my being shell-shocked by Bishop being skewered and ripped apart to give me that punishment. To, To be honest, as I was being whipped, I wasn't thinking about the belt or the temporary pain or even the disappointment of my parents. I was thinking how gnarly the alien queen treated Bishop and how how he was how was he possibly alive and what was that milky white stuff coming out of his body so i became intrigued despite once again the tether between me and these movies was one of fear and shock when i felt like renting it uh i was around the age of 13 i think somehow i convinced my mother that i was ready for aliens and somehow She was okay with it as long as she watched it with me. Uh, She didn't approve of the profanity. uh, Profanity or sex or nudity was a big no-no in the viewings in her household. I love that James Cameron brought a war film feeling to the sequel and how quickly the assurance of the firepower and the equipment and the military prowess proved pointless in that ambush. How quickly things were set to square one and how the stakes piled up considering that more than one alien would have to be dealt with. I love how Ripley's care of Newt brought out a maternal side to her that we didn't see in the previous film. I love how Aliens has its own take on a slow burn build up. The, the script has that same quality that Lawrence Kasdan's script for Raiders of the Lost Ark did. The ability to dispense plot info and exposition without ever losing momentum. And how, like Spielberg's film, there's there always seemed to be one more trick up the sleeve. I eventually bought my own used copy of Aliens at a Goodwill. Shrink-wrapped, but otherwise, same case as the one from Video Mart. When I watched it again, the greatest teaser trailer of all time in my opinion the teaser for alien came on before the film so of course i had to return the alien and i'm so glad that i did multiple times for both my nightmares or father's belt couldn't stop me from these films the next pick is uh the last of the mohicans from 1992 I recall seeing one one TV spot for The Last of the Mohicans, the 1992 film from Michael Mann and starring Daniel Day-Lewis, and I remember certain moments, like the close-up shot of Day-Lewis hitting that uh, Indian in the face with a tomahawk. I remember Chingachgook throwing that badass weapon of his at the camera, you know, that thing that looked like a cross between an axe and a scimitar. I can remember that shot of the canoe going over the waterfall. This all looked amazing. We rented it, 
and it seemed to be like a landmark first um, for me as a film uh, lover. The VHS version, the rental version, had a widescreen format. And it wasn't the 240 aspect ratio, but it was close. And it floored me. The film is full of striking visuals. So to watch this panned and scanned, which I'm so glad is dead in the age of Blu-ray, it just seemed like a joke. It, it it occurred to me that most, if not all, films had this look, and it made sense. I'd gone to the theater. Movies are shot or projected into this rectangular frame. N nothing even close to a TV screen. So they had cropped the films to fit the screen. Um, and it's like the wool over my eyes had been pulled. The widescreen format for VHS tapes would be very rare. And the video more didn't carry hardly any tiles in that format. The only other one I can think of is Lawrence of Arabia, which I also watched. But I would uh, try to obtain widescreen movies if they were ever available. Uh, I would get widescreen uh, formats for, say, The Abyss or Blade Runner, the director's cut. Hell, even Mask of Zorro at one point. Uh, by the time I saw this, I was in uh, seventh grade, and I found out through the credits that the film was based on a book by James Fenimore Cooper. Uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing that middle name correctly. If I'm not, so what? Uh, book was of the same name, and I checked out the book at the li uh, school library, tried to read it, and I found it very dull. Michael Mann's film was, you know, kinetic in its energy and artful and passionate and grisly at times and seriously romantic. So the only way that I could experience that high again would be to rent it again and again and again and so forth. It led to an appreciation for Michael Mann and his approach to filmmaking and I would look forward to his films in the future as well as see if uh, any of his in the past existed at, uh, or were available at the Video Mart. One Saturday, and I believe it was 1994, the weekend of my birthday that year, I was uh, rewarded with a trip to uh, town. Uh, this would be Batesville, which is like the closest big town uh, to Pleasant Plains. We stopped for gasoline at the Video Mart. I had to return a movie. And I had just required some birthday money and uh, informed my parents of the desire to rent less the Mohicans again. They rolled their eyes but said yes. Score. We head to Batesville, which is where my parents currently live, and uh, we hit the local Walmart. I head toward the electronics department like I do every time I go to Walmart unless I need to be there for other things because that, that's where all the movies are, that's where all the games, that's where all the music is. I go there and lo and behold they're selling VHS copies of The Last of the Mohicans for $20. And holy shit the soundtrack in cassette is included as a bonus. I had to get it. My dad said, but son you just rented it. Well. Win-win, Dad. The next uh, choice will be Die Hard. Now here's a story of how fucking stupid a kid I was. The first time that I saw the cover for this movie, the VHS 
uh, copy and read the tagline 40 stories of sheer adventure I had no idea that stories referred to levels of a building and in this case a skyscraper I thought that almost thought for a small time that Die Hard was an anthology of you know shorts or whatever all of them action adventure related sounds awesome but I'm glad I was wrong because the end result is one of the finest action films of all time and easily one of my top 20 favorites I saw this for the first time when I was either 14 or 15 and again the constant profanity was shouted down by my mother and the film even had some brief glimpses of uh, boobs in truly sleazy fashion but this movie is such a good time with amusing but effective villains a round of colorful and sometimes stupid supporting characters and a really good use of set design and there was Bruce Willis as John McClane of course the camera work by Yon Bond was amazing and I would remember that name since Speed would be out in a year or so and that Bond directed it the action scenes were top-notch creatively shot and blocked and fueled by character development but not so much the choreography one of my favorite scenes in this film involves this panning shot on the top of the Nakatomi uh, building McLean had just used one of the terrorist uh, walkie talkies from the one he uh, first one he kills to alert the authorities if they're on that specific channel and unfortunately this gives away his uh, location and uh, Hans Gruber sends three gunmen uh, on his tail. One of the gunmen, uh, Carl, has a score to sell with McLean, seeing how McLean killed his brother earlier. We learn from a previous scene in an elevator between the gunman and Carl, and as he's putting together his Steyr Aug rifle, he tells the other two, no one kills him but me. And as Sergeant Al Powell is about to reluctantly make his ride over to the Nakatomi building, McLean is suddenly in a gunfight. Now, let's get back to this panning shot, which starts from the far right of the roof, where two terrorist gunmen are firing off screen. The camera pans further left to McLean, firing back and in retreat. You see and hear the bullets go off around McLean, but never hit him but it causes him to retreat and the camera pans even further left and now we're on the helipad where Carl is slowly but surely making his way across it almost kind of like a tiger and Carl's plan is suddenly clear his comrades are forcing McLean into retreat into a position where Carl can get a good clear shot at him I love the geography and the logic of that and the, the, the logic of it is so completely clear. I, I love how the camera lets you know where everyone is, how there's a buildup and a payoff, and how it's so character-centric. I, I love that. And I rented this so much that my mother got tired of it that I felt that my best friend, who I showed it to, despite the fact that he had seen it, he didn't share the same enthusiasm as I did, but I didn't know what else to do. This was a classic, and it was laden with uh, brilliance and creativity. The next uh, selection would be Predator. 
Since John McTiernan directed Die Hard, it stood to reason that I should eventually see Predator. I think I saw Predator 2 before the original. I visited a friend's house once, and he and his friends were all watching Predator 2. You know, kids and teenagers of all ages. Uh, it was strange, but I rarely see R-rated films in this capacity, less so even with friends, even at that point. The film had come out in like early 90s, so uh, it, it, I'd never put in, found myself in a situation like that, but I didn't mind or feel uncomfortable. Uh, Predator 2 is a lot of fun, but it's so dumb, and Danny Glover just seemed to be a more laid-back version of uh, Roger Murtaugh, his character from the Lethal Weapon uh, series. Gary Busey's wag job federal agent gave the movie a certain flavor, but from what I heard from my friends was this. The first one was better. And when I saw it, I have to agree, it truly was. It is this macho asshole behavior personified on such a scale that I don't think it'll ever be topped. It could have been titled Alpha Male the Movie, but that's what the first half feels like. These are... Tough hombres, yes, but they're also cartoonish. And haven't seen it again, their chicken hawk chest thumping annex just made me laugh my ass off. So, this is apparently what real men are like. Oh, well, in that case, I'm fucked. The jungle settings feel so immersive. I could feel the sweat and the heat of those surroundings. Uh, Donald McAlpine's, I'm probably, or McAlpine's, I can't. You know, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. The cinematography was so effective and the choreography of Dutch's team is so creative that you can almost forget there are chunks of the movie where you're just seeing footage of these goofs wandering around the jungle, aiming their guns in random directions. You have a mass murderer of Banana Republic militia types. You know, apparently they were like survivors from the climactic uh, assault and commando, I'm, I'm guessing. And then Kevin Peter Hall shows up as the Predator. He's bigger, he's badder, and he's not even remotely boastful about it, which is why I suspect some of Dutch, Dutch's crew, the Schwarzenegger's character, why his crew de- deserves their deaths. And I love that moment at the end when Schwarzenegger is luring the Predator into his trap. The Predator starts to lean in on him, and he has to kind of make his way through this little tunnel to get to a Dutch, but the moment when his head brushes up against one of the these homemade spikes that Dutch made, the Predator has this, what the hell is this thing, look on his face, and then he decides to choose an alternate route to reach Dutch. How the Predator's face reacts to this spike and Dutch was so convincing that, you know, you can almost forget it's a great Stan Winston creation, you almost think it's real. I did, I did at least. But again, you have a crew of badass soldiers, like in Aliens, gradually taken apart by a meaner, deadlier force. The security of military experience and armory on display meaning nothing against old Natty Dread. Uh, Also, Schwarzenegger is in rare form here in the second half, not being able to bulldoze over the villain, trying to retreat if possible, and actually showing fear. It kind of takes his persona down a peg, but, you know, that doesn't matter even if he does survive the battle. I I still think it's one of his best moments on film. 
the last uh, pick is Goldeneye. Thanks to the numerous marathons on TBS during the early 90s, I forget when another channel got the rights to show Bond films. Uh, but thanks to those TBS marathons, I grew up on James Bond. I recorded all that they would show. They showed basically everything from Dr. No to License to Kill. Uh, they did not have the rights to own Her Majesty's Secret Service for some weird reason. Uh, but with GoldenEye, with, I mean, with James Bond, uh, we got another infallible alpha male who almost always gets the girl, kills everyone, and seems to get second chance after second chance. And like many others, it puzzled me that it took so long for the Bond franchise to continue after License to Kill, but I took to Pierce Brosnan very quickly. Uh, GoldenEye, out of all the Brosnan Bond films... Uh, was uh, Brosnan's finest hour, even as he proved to be the best thing about all of his uh, Bond films. Uh, the thing that the thing is that in GoldenEye, everything else clicked. Uh, you had a great story, a great supporting cast, uh, great spectacle, and the way that this film addresses political correctness while shamelessly embracing the hokier aspects of the the franchise such as the attitudes towards violence and dead stupid henchmen and even sex but like aliens and raiders of the lost ark it has momentum without ever losing focus again something i really respond to it's it's one of the more well-paced films in the bond series Globe trotting through one vehicle to one foot chase to one gunfight after another. It, it, it gets this close to exhausting, but I've never seen a Bond film like that at that point. Be and it just felt amazing because of that. It, it does have this roller coaster ride feel to it at times. And I was so taken aback by that aspect that. It was what led me to revisiting it again and again and again. And, again. and of course, my mom uh, was slightly annoyed that I didn't know what else... But I, I, I didn't know what else to do about it, you know? Until it was available to purchase at a decent price, I needed to get my fix. In my opinion, at that age, there are worse things to get addicted to. I'm going to wrap it up here. There may be more Video Mart related stories in the future. I hope there are. I'd like there to be regular episodes with guests. So, again, if you'd like to be a guest and contribute in any way, please let me know. As always, I can be reached via Twitter. My handle there is Avid Acrojam. That's all lowercase. That is spelled A V I D A C R I D. J A M. You can also email me at past and pending podcast at gmail.com. And if you just want to leave feedback or thoughts on topics that have been covered previously, uh, please do so. In closing, my name once again is Adam Sexton. You've been listening to the Past and the Pending Podcast. Remember that you can't quite appreciate what you have now if you don't know and love what came before.